0: Now it's time for Inspirational Women, and my guest, Sophie Egan, who combines her talents as a journalist who also holds a master's degree in public health. Sophie's written much on the topic of food, nutrition, how we eat, and now this new book is truly incredible, a great guide, How to Be a Conscious Eater. So let's meet Sophie and learn. Sophie Egan, good morning. It is so wonderful to connect with you this morning.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: My delight, really, and excitement at such a wonderful book, How to Be a Conscious Eater, Making Food Choices That Are Good for You, others and the planet. It's just so holistic in that way and something that uh, is such an interesting read and so critically important to us at any time. But I think even now as we want to raise our consciousness and be aware of, of uh, all that's going around on around us, uh, this is a perfect book.
1: Well, thank you. I'm so glad you, you took that away from it up in the book. That really hits the nail on the head, the word holistic. Uh, the goal is truly to help uh, eaters widen the lens uh, and uh, increase the number of factors uh, that they're really aware of in evaluating a food um, and making that choice between one over the other. So often we can get tunnel vision, very much focused on a certain diet, this regimen, that regimen, and often it's only focused on is this good? Is this food good for me, my body, my own health, whatever program I might be on? So really taking into account the the footprint of our food choices uh, across the board more holistically is really the goal of the book. At the same time, though, not making it so overwhelming given uh, the decision fatigue that can already be occurring. So it's both widening the lens and and Um, providing a more comprehensive approach um, to deciding whether a food is quote-unquote good or not, um, but also helping to simplify those choices on a daily basis because we're all busy.
0: Right. And comprehensive is a a really great word to use here as well because you cover so much territory, but it's done in really what I'd say a pretty simple, succinct way so that it kind of gets right to the point. Here are the things that you need to look at. The book is divided into four really great categories that help us to maybe focus in on on one particular thing that's uh, at the front of our minds at this particular time. That sort of thing, you've made it really easy to use.
1: Well, thank you. That too was a major goal with the book. So the book is divided into four parts. So it's food that comes from the ground, stuff that comes from the ground, stuff that uh, or plants, stuff that comes from animals, stuff that comes from factories, those are the packaged foods, and then stuff that comes from restaurant kitchens. And it's in that order, actually, because it's descending order of the foods that we should be eating the most of. So generally speaking, we know that whole foods from the ground, those plant-based foods, fruits, vegetables, nuts, legumes, whole grains, herbs, spices, plant oils, those are the things that should make up the bulk of our diet in terms of aligning human and environmental health. And then generally we know that foods that you get at restaurants are by and large, not always, but by and large are less healthy as are those packaged foods. So it's really um, in decreasing order. And as you said, it's super concise. This is the short and sweet bottom line answers to top of mind questions about what on earth to eat. Um, and, and that really, that intention uh, was set from the beginning uh, because I understand that people want to know enough to make an informed choice, but they don't need the encyclopedia. They don't need the entire history of antibiotic resistance. They don't need the entire, you know, set of guidelines on every uh, aspect in the organic criteria, uh, certification criteria. They need to know enough to make informed choices they can feel good about. And that's really the goal with with this approach. And it's also very highly visual. Um, it's meant to be super accessible, super approachable, so that if you're, uh, maybe you come to this book from one of the dimensions, maybe you care a lot about animal welfare, maybe you care a lot about your own health, um, or maybe you're just um, sort of generally aware of the, the broadening kind of food movement and want to scratch the surface on a couple of topics. Uh, there are all kinds of resources out there to go deeper, but this book is, is comprehensive. It is a one-stop shop uh, that, is, that really brings under the tent that, that, that holistic view that we talked about so that you can have essentially prescription lenses to see straight uh, amid the bewildering world of food information.
0: And, and that, oh, that is what is so beautiful about this book. And each of us needs to definitely have a copy and not just have it but read it and jump around in it if need be because I think it really lends itself to be used in that way and we'll find... Uh, one thing will lead to the next, but we can start with what's, you know, at, again, the top of our mind.
1: Right. I, th- I think that's exactly right. Is to be to have it as a as a resource that's you know maybe it's in your kitchen drawer when you're evaluating, um, you're deciding which recipes to make for for the week. And oh gosh, should I do the pork? Uh, you know, the the pulled pork sandwiches or should we try something different? Maybe do more of a, a lentil butternut squash soup. Um, oh, yeah, right. You know, the nitrogen fixing properties of lentils. That recipe wins. Um, where you really can kind of make those those choices um, in your daily meal planning, or excuse me, your weekly meal planning. Uh, maybe it's even in your car console um, or, or wherever it is that you're making grocery decisions. Uh, It is meant to be that um, sort of little black book, if you will, that you keep close at hand, dog ear, jump around. And really, you know, it's interesting in 2020 to have a book that, that I say hopefully serves that purpose because you would think, well, the Internet has way more information. Couldn't I just Google it? But the problem I find, and this is a major driver in why I wrote the book, is the question of sourcing and what information sources can you trust? Because there is. So much misinformation out there that it can be um, both incorrect and also just time-consuming. Uh, so often if you wanted a simple answer, you know, coconut oil or olive oil, you could be down the rabbit hole of 27 browser windows and, oh my God, 45 minutes just went by and I was, you know, the, the, <laughs> the grocery store is, um, you know, getting um, more packed by the minute or you're going to, you know, now it's traffic hour and you missed your window. Um, so it's really to be that um, cut to the chase, uh, kind of, as I said, the bottom line answers, but also sort of the tiebreaker, right? Maybe you have heard something about, um, you know, I shouldn't be eating grains from like somebody, in, you know, maybe on you're on your Facebook, uh, a Facebook friend, or you have a, a sister-in-law who's telling you why to avoid, you know, legumes for, you know, dietary reasons or, you know, digestive reasons. Um, and this is really meant to be that tiebreaker um, evidence-based source you can trust that also saves you time um, because inevitably the internet search, uh, unless you really know which sources are evidence-based um, and have based on the scientific consensus, uh, y- you can be just left, uh, you know, <laughs> with your head swirling.
0: Precisely. And I think that happens to many of us and sometimes we kind of just throw up our hands and say, okay, I'm going to just trust my gut and do what I did before but here because we really are you know really I think at the base of it wanting to be conscious and do the right thing and be responsible and healthy and 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 think about others and think about the planet so that's why this helps us to really you've woven it all together so well for us Sophie
1: well thank you yeah that that is that is exactly right and and I, I think one of the important things too here is we're all i think if, if if you are as you said sort of trying to raise your consciousness or make choices that you you feel good about in terms of the, the voting with your your fork or voting with your grocery basket, that notion that our our small steps collectively add up and they really do um it's also important to not let the perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, part of the goal here with the book is, I call it, radically practical. It's not only that it's concise and visually hopefully helps make the information more digestible, but it also really recognizes the constraints. This is, this is not a, a diet, an overnight overhauling of, of the way that you eat and getting rid of all the foods you love. This is a lifelong pursuit and new factors are going to arise all the time. So it's that we're all in sort of this evolution of, oh, I didn't realize I needed to be worrying about single-use plastics until the past year where this has just blown up, right, and we're all kind of thinking more about, um, wow, maybe I can incorporate more reusable items into my daily life. That wasn't uh, We were more focused just on the foods in the packages as opposed to the packaging um, until very recently. Um, labor is an issue that has come on the scene much more recently with, um, chocolate production, with farm worker uh, health in terms of pesticide use, um, and cancer risk, uh, with slavery and shrimp production. A lot of these aspects were of food production were kept in the dark for so long. So my, my point with that is that this is a, a framework good for you, others on the planet. This is a framework, a mental checklist that is really um, not trying to say every single time you put something in your mouth that food should check all three boxes or else, um, because that's going to be completely unsustainable um, and overwhelming in your in your daily life. There are also the factors of do you like it? Does it taste good? Is it re- culturally appropriate? Is it religiously appropriate? Um, is it convenient enough? Does it fit your budget? There are so many other factors, too, that are, of course, going to be swirling in there. Uh, on a a daily or hourly basis, uh, depending on your eating style. Um, But the idea that this is at least a mindset, an intention to be aware of the factors um, as new information arises and as you as an eater become ever more um, informed in terms of what you define as conscious, in terms of what values you want to support uh, through the food choices that you're making for yourself and for your household.
0: And we get such a good education here because this is the, not something I learned in school, which was, of course, many years ago. But I don't know that there's even today this kind of invaluable education about the kinds of foods, even though it says five servings of fruits and vegetables. But mm. are, are we following that? We should have protein. But how much of it? And and that in particular, you, you tell us how in the United States here, we really indulge in protein, maybe not everyone, but most of us probably eat much more than we need to, and we don't need to, and how to balance that and be healthier than we are.
1: Right. Protein is, is one of those um, great, I, I call it the great protein myth. Um, in the U.S. in particular, we think we need more protein than we do. We think we get less protein than we do. And we think that the kind of good or best quality proteins can only come from animal sources. And that, that, that sort of trio of sub of myths makes up that larger <laughs> great protein mess, as I described. But the bigger issue that you're getting at is a real loss of food literacy. Um, and that's a, an ability to trust your intuition as an adult that really starts in childhood, right, of Um, I actually described this in quite quite a bit of detail in my first book, Devoured, um, which is that as food is not treated as an essential part of American society, of American life, kids are given sometimes 17 minutes to eat lunch, um, much less no education about where the food comes from or nutrition or how to cook it and be um, self-sufficient in uh, feeding yourself once you get flung out into the world, right, at age 18 or 21 or whatever age you start to make your own choices, um, there's really no um, broad national effort to support, um, you might call it gastronomic citizenship, the notion that these skills, these are life skills and an essential knowledge, that literacy of um, the sort of fundamentals of food as you say, where would you learn this? Um, for so many of us, it's ad hoc. It's, oh, I read Michael Pollan's book and my mind, my eyes were opened, or I saw a great um, documentary or uh, an article caught my eye uh, about the carbon footprint of need and I had no idea. And in some ways, it can feel like this betrayal almost, like all those years I was putting that in my body. I had no idea. Um, but it's, the book here, its not it really is trying to fill that gap um, for adults who maybe feel like in other areas of their life, especially, uh, they really had the opportunity to, to learn enough to make their choices, um, enough to make choices in their daily lives about other aspects. You know, maybe it's financial decisions or other household products or just other, um, other decisions just about <laughs> being, a, a, you know, again, being a citizen. So this is a real crisis from a policy standpoint. Um, I, I know I'm not alone in, in saying that, and, and there are a lot of organizations addressing this issue. Uh, Food Corps, for instance, is a phenomenal organization that provides educators in schools, um, Edible Schoolyard, um, started by Alice Waters, to really make those connections at that young, early age so that at least in a generational shift, hopefully <laughs> kids now... Um, at least those who have the opportunity to participate in programs like that, by the time they're adults, they won't even need a book about conscious eating because it'll just be eating to them. They'll know the ins and outs. Um, That's my hope, at least. But right now it's really at more of that grassroots NGO level and and far more is needed to make everyone feel empowered um, and then able to trust their gut, as you said, instead of feeling this sort of unease, Um, and and just throwing up your hands because you don't know what to make of of all the information.
0: Exactly, and so often it can be conflicting information and, well— in the whole area of organic versus non-organic gardening. And we look at the prices and we think, can I afford this? And here you kind of pull the curtain away so we can really see some good evidence as to what we might feel we can incorporate into our purchases and, and of course, then ultimately eating. Right. And
1: so certified organic is a great Example of a, a kind of a top of mind question that people want the bottom line answer to, right? And it, it's not again that it's one answer or one size fits all, but it's a in the book I'm really trying to provide, generally speaking, this is a general guidance that can get you through most of your decisions. And people often say, you know, is organic just a you know, just a claim? And actually, organic is one of the most rigorous certifications out there. It's one of the most Meaningful terms that you can see on a package because it's so well regulated by USDA. Um, it really does mean uh, no synthetic pesticides, no growth hormones, no antibiotics. Um, if it's a processed food product, granted, that means that 95% or more of the ingredients in that product were certified organic, but that's a little in the weeds. Um, but then to the point of, is it worth it? you may not necessarily need to buy organic everything or able to afford that. Right. right. Um, so it's helpful, I think, to understand where it has the kind of the most bang for your buck. And I like the framework put forward by the environmental working group, which is the notion of the dirty dozen and the clean 15. And those are very simple. Um, the list you can look up on org's website. Um, and then I, I provide in the book as well. which are basically the, for produce specifically, which um, fruits and vegetables kind of uh, tend to have the most pesticide use, this is purely from a health standpoint, um, and then which ones are kind of the, the quote-unquote clean or, or least likely to um, to be worrisome in terms of the, the pesticide, the you know, cumulative pesticide use. Uh, but then, of course, actually I also kind of point out that coming down the pike is this concept of regenerative practices. And a lot of folks in in the food systems work, like myself, um, are really, really excited about regenerative practices, which is not out there yet as a certification for um, only in a pilot form, Um, but you wouldn't see this on your grocery store shelves yet, but you soon will hopefully. Um, And this is really going to take the concept of organic, which is um, a step in the right direction, but thus far is still a very small percentage of the total available food supply. It's um, shocking how small it is, I think, for many people, um, given just the scale of, of uh, conventional production that persists. Um, but regenerative is sort of like this notion of organic plus. And it's, it's really actually um, not only sort of doing less bad, so like you may notice that organic is mostly about the practices that are not allowed, and regenerative is really more about um, it, it, it's often those same aspects it's yes and um, going a step further to actually leave the soil better than it was even before and really contributing to rich microbial diversity um, in the soil that makes it um, uh, the, the, the crops even more nutritious and often more delicious um, than they were before. So a lot of folks are excited about regenerative as, um, as something that not only can again kind of be a value add, but can really rally customers um, because it can also capture uh, carbon in the soil, um, which is really exciting. If you think about one of the main takeaways from the book, is that our food choices, our daily food choices, are an often overlooked yet incredibly powerful daily tool for climate action that all of us can take tomorrow, today. Uh, you don't need to buy solar panels or a Tesla to make that contribution.
0: And that definitely feels empowering. Food is something we obviously need. we consume every day to then be able to use it in this way. that is really so empowering
1: yeah, and that that's I feel felt that way when I learned about it myself um, is this notion that I mean the climate crisis is for many people a mental health crisis. It is incredibly stressful to think about. Especially as soon as you have children, for me, this became ever more real, the notion that um, the planet is, you know, that our house is on fire, right? That was the the term thrown around when we we saw these awful wildfires um, in Brazil. Uh, And when you have a next generation to think about the planet that they're inhabiting, it becomes... Visceral. I mean, I have climate nightmares myself all the time, waking up in a fire. Um, so to counter that, <laughs> to be to have that feeling of empowerment through your food choices, I say I feel is even more needed at this moment when the rest of the information sort of coming in about climate change can feel so crippling um, and just terrifying.
0: Right. And rather than feeling still kind of down about it, I think it's important to think that, you know, if we hear this, we act on what we know, we believe, and we move forward, and in that way, kind of are helping to raise a consciousness about it, to really trust that that is going to make a difference, to believe, I believe mm-hmm. it makes a difference, that I do the right thing.
1: That's so true, right? I think a lot of times it can be easy to think, well, what difference does my choice make, right? right. Um Is that really gonna? Isn't that just a drop in the bucket? But it's it's being part of a revolution. My hope is how readers feel is really this conscious eater revolution um, is in the aggregate able to. It's not just drops in the bucket, but that's a groundswell. That is uh, what's incredibly exciting to me was the first time I learned this statistic, which is drawdown. um, An organization has put together the eighty most effective solutions for reversing global warming. And you see things on there like, you know, wind turbines and, um, you know, electric vehicles. And those are much needed. Transportation doesn't mean we don't keep worrying about transportation from a climate standpoint. But what I think really stands out to people in that list is that of the top 20 solutions, eight relate to food. Of the top five, number three most effective solution for reversing global warming is wasting less food. Number four is plant-rich diet. And I find that incredibly exciting when you think about this collective action, as a, again, as I said, as a groundswell, that if all of us together are, it becomes a social norm to take a variety of steps that are helpful in wasting less food, whether that's using scraps, whether that's um, just being more conscious of what you're buying up front, so you're wasting less, Um, portion sizes in restaurants, maybe you're splitting an entree if you're not as hungry that night, right? I mean, there's many steps you can take. And then the plant-rich diets, that's also called flexitarian, plant-forward, plant-centric, name it what you want, but it basically just means that the emphasis in your diet is on plant-based foods, whole preferably or or minimally processed. doesn't mean you can't eat any processed foods, um, but mostly we're not talking about, you know, the vegan cupcakes and and so forth. We're talking about um, the the healthier also, because we don't want to get um, tunnel vision and only focus on environmental impact. But those two steps, those are two things that are incredibly powerful um, levers for achieving drawdown, which is when global warming starts to actually, um, temperatures start to actually drop. And that's, I hope, I hope a very hopeful message uh, yes. that that readers can take away, um, and very memorable uh, because it it isn't doing everything right. It's not that you have to again completely overhaul the way you you eat or the way that you the way that you grocery shop or the way that you order out. But if you just keep in mind those two in particular have the most bang for your buck environmentally speaking, that, that's that's going to go a really long way. Um, and so that in particular means when you're eating more plant based foods uh, as a proportion in your diet what are you replacing? Hopefully, most of all, you're replacing um, the highest carbon footprint foods, which tend to be ruminant red meat. So beef is the biggest one in the US. Um, it doesn't mean everybody becomes vegan and vegetarian overnight, it just, or, or vegan and vegetarian ever, excuse me. Um, it's not, It doesn't have to be that restrictive. It's just about proportion and emphasis and understanding that maybe a, a weekly average, if you go from eating, say, the equivalent of three hamburgers per week, which is the amount that average American eats, not in burger form necessarily, but in beef uh, or in red meat, uh, to maybe only one burger per week on average. Um, and again, that's burger equivalent. That alone would make an enormous difference. So it's looking for those small changes that can be sustained over a lifetime and that have the biggest impact on your own health and that of the planet.
0: And the thing is, just begin. And I think, right. And with this book, you give us such great eye openers and really good science, basic information that we can work with, uh, you know, to use a shopping list when we go shopping. I think we've probably heard that. But this, I think, really (laughs) underscores the importance and value of it. So how to be a conscious eater and a must-have book. And uh, we're getting the jump on it because actually it only is uh, out in bookstores, I think, and available for purchase in a couple of days on March the 17th. So uh, we're giving you the pre-warning here or the pre-advertising, plus the fact that uh, we think that you could very easily be in Seattle at a book event at uh town hall, right, Sophie? Yes, certainly
1: hope to be at Town Hall on uh, March 19th at 7.30 p.m. And certainly encourage folks to uh, stay up to date on the entire book tour. would love to see you there or anywhere along the way. Uh, my website, sophieegan.com has all the details.
0: Exactly. Along with so much other information too, to just keep track of what's going on. But bottom line, I think we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our future generations. We owe it to other people on the planet and, and of course, to our own dear planet that we obviously have an intimate relationship with, to, to read this and to really take it to heart. Don't just read it and put it on a shelf, but really embrace it. Right, Sophie?
1: Yes. And I think the the, the best message, as you said, is just begin. Uh, I'll be right there in the trenches with you. This is not about perfection, um, but acting, action is the key. This is translating what we know, what the science clearly tells us, into small daily steps that in in aggregate add up in a big, big way. And one other thing I'll add is if you feel really uh, excited about the power and potential of all of these steps, think about the even larger scale of institutional purchasing or city level efforts and raise your voice in those contexts too.
0: Exactly. And I Dare to say that as we get started and we see uh, the difference it makes in our own life, that we can't help but become real passionate and ambassadors of making change in the world.
1: Absolutely. That would be a beautiful next step from this book, How to Be a Conscious Eater. I would be delighted um, if if that's what happens. And and I know so so many folks are excited just to to start at at their individual level the household level has a multiplier effect with your children and then hopefully absolutely all of us can can really be those collective ambassadors in our communities too.
0: Well, you are an absolute delight and inspiration and such a wealth of knowledge. I so greatly appreciate that you are so passionate about this Sophie Egan and that you've spent this time with us today.
1: Thank you so much for the opportunity. You're welcome.
0: We have a Sunday morning shout out for Youth Eastside Services, yes, who's had to cancel their Invest in Youth breakfast and so have launched a virtual event. This is due to the rising concerns related to the coronavirus. So, youth is doing something different. We are living in a different kind of time and are needing to be flexible. So, this virtual event. Is happening March the 18th through the 25th, and you can find it online at https://www.youtheastsideservice.org/breakfast. This Yes virtual event includes inspiring stories from Yes CEO Patty Skelton McGugan, Yes client and keynote speaker, best-selling author, documentary filmmaker, and mental health advocate. Kevin Hines, and Yes's Generous Champions Matching Pool is going to match all gifts over $500. This is new territory dealing with a pandemic and needing to work on and support the important pieces of our life and our society. So we're learning together to be flexible. And here is one great way to do so. Please be supportive. And with that, we're at the end of a very full hour of Inspirational Women with Sophie Egan and Sunday Morning Magazine with Chuck Potrykis. Click on the podcast tab, then Sunday mornings, and look for the show and guest names. I now wish you and your family a day of calm thinking and planning positive and constructive things in our life. Have a week of the same, and then please plan to join me again next weekend for another hour of Sunday Morning Magazine and Inspirational Women on Warm 106.9. Good morning.